This is the Journal of American History podcast for December 2014. Michael Pfeiffer is Associate Professor in the Department of History at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice at the City University of New York. He's the author of Rough Justice, Lynching and American Society, 1874 to 1947, The Roots of Rough Justice, Origins of American Lynching, the editor of Lynching Beyond Dixie, American Mob Violence Outside the South, and now at work as an editor on a two-volume collection on global lynching. We're talking with him today about his State of the Field essay, At the Hands of Parties Unknown, the State of Field of Lynching Scholarship in the Journal of American History in December 2014. Michael, thank you so much for this superb essay and for taking the time to do this podcast. Well, thank you, Ed. It's a pleasure to talk with you today. You uh, you started the essay, Michael, and brought back uh, a number of memories uh, from me when you wrote about the uh, Emory University Conference in October 2002, Lynching and Racial Violence in America, Histories and Legacies, and the Without Sanctuary photographic exhibition, that extraordinarily painful and important exhibition that ran with it. And I remember being at that conference so well and thinking to myself then, uh, and you wrote uh, your words, the sheer variety and extent of inquiry of these, uh, what, 25 uh, mostly younger scholars, this new generation of scholars uh, writing about all this, why did it take so long for for this uh, uh, seeming explosion of of interest to happen in what, alas, is a a, a chronic um, American form of violence? Why, why do you think the early years of the twenty first century? Yeah, well, that's that's a sort of a complex question, and I I think I, I try to get at this a little bit in the essay, but um, maybe just to kind of uh, uh, go into a little bit more detail, but I, I think it's there are different explanations based upon the, the region uh, of, of the U.S. that we're, that we're considering and the particular uh, scholarship for that region. So uh, for the South, you know, I think the sort of the emergence of a, of a uh, mature scholarship on lynching, um, or actually uh, sort of any kind of extended consideration, this started uh, in the late 1980s, um, and then continued into the 90s, and, and then really, really flowered in the 90s and after. And I think that was part of a flowering of, of, uh, of sort of the historiography on the on the New South. But before that, there had been some scholarship on on Southern lynching. Um, actually, some some very interesting stuff that has been done by anti-lynching activists, in particular, also by maybe liberal white Southern scholars, but in the 1930s and 40s and so on, but it was it was quite limited. It was quite uh, diffuse and sporadic. But then there was this this flowering of of sort of the the, the new social history moving into uh, southern history in the uh, late 1980s that, that really brought kind of this late efflorescence of, of attention to, to lynching uh, in the southern experience. The story is different for the West, and I, I make some reference to this in the essay and and so i you know i sort of had experience with 
the landscapes of both of these scholarships, these regional scholarships, as I was working on a dissertation in the 1990s and then starting to publish stuff out of that, out of that work um, in the late 1990s and then the, the early 2000s. But, but in the West, um, for the Western scholarship, the, the sense of the, of, of, of the role of lynching violence in the Western past was a, was a bit different. You know, there was sort of a, a, a popular image of the violence in the West that was actually somewhat, somewhat positive even. Some lynching violence had been sort of valorized and, in uh, you know, uh, popular representations, as as uh, you know, vigilantes uh, uh, performing uh, uh, important functions and in sort of uh, ending early disorder in, in in the American West, and I think historians had developed a, a quite understandable distaste for that, that that sort of that popular understanding, and there was also in in sort of the Western scholarship, there's been this very long debate about how violent the West really was. And that debate, it, it is, I think it's been useful in some ways, but it also, I think, served to sort of distract scholars and sort of kept them away from, from looking very carefully at, the, at Western violence. So uh, this meant that, that Western lynching wasn't looked at very carefully. And I think until the early uh, 21st century. And a lot of the, the stuff that had been done before that really was not very good, I would say. I mean, it, was, it wasn't looking at the violence very carefully. It was kind of assuming that the, the violence was filling in for uh, an absent criminal justice system in the early years of the West. And that's, that's uh, an oversimplification. It's actually inaccurate in a lot of cases in terms of the, uh, the lynching in the West. So, in terms of why this took so long, it's a different story based upon region, but there were these various factors that, that meant that people didn't didn't really deal with the violence, didn't address the violence. And of course, in the South, it's important to note that there was a real reluctance to deal with this, this legacy of this horrific practice of lynching African Americans and the, the great suffering that was caused by by this um, uh this, this violent mechanism that was used to oppress African Americans, something that also has an analog for the West, where there was sort of this this forgetting of the violence that was directed by Anglo's against uh, Mexicans, also against uh, uh, Native Americans. So it's sort of this willful forgetting as well that I think suppressed uh, attention uh, to these things in both regions. But in terms of the respective scholarships. The, the, the histories are somewhat different. Thank you, Michael. What about uh, the region in which I live, the, the Midwest? I mean, certainly in Indiana and even in, in Minnesota, there have been uh, uh, expressions of, of lynching. Um, is, is there good new scholarship that's, that's come out about the Midwest region? Yeah, that's yeah, the, the, the Midwest is of, of great interest to me. I'm a native Midwesterner as well, and so I, I've really taken a great interest in sort of the lynching in the Midwest and, and, and the history of violence in the Midwest. I would say that, that that scholars are beginning to look at this. You know, the Midwest, it's sort of been a region that's been kind of left out and neglected, even as other uh, regions of the, uh, of the U.S. Have, have, been, have developed sort of rich scholarships. And uh, I think that's beginning to change, and I, th I think that scholars are beginning to appreciate that the Midwest did have a meaningful history 
of collective violence. It, it's it's less though. I, I think it's important to emphasize that in, in, just in terms of uh, quantity, um, we're talking about less violence in the Midwest, but still significant. I, and I think still worth paying attention to. And I I do think that 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 this is beginning to change. And of course, within the Midwest, we have to make distinctions. The lower Midwest, and uh, unfortunately, Indiana uh, would be a leading state in terms of a, a, a lynching history. But the lower Midwest saw a lot of this activity. So Iowa, Illinois, Ohio, and again, particularly the southern tiers of counties in those states. Um, and then if we look at the upper Midwest, it, it, it's, it's less, quantitatively speaking, but still significant and still worth paying attention to. So I, I think scholars are beginning to look at this, but I, I think it's it's something that, that merits a lot more attention. Good, thank you. Uh, one of the things that that interested me uh, is is your brief but important nod to the term itself, and that it's been defined uh, sloppily. People use it in different ways, and I confess that uh, until I began reading some of this literature, and and certainly your state of the field. I always equated lynching with hanging, and yet clearly that that is not the case. Um, is there a, a kind of discipline-wide acceptance of a good, robust definition of lynching? Uh, if not, do we need one? And maybe f- uh, it would be good for listeners if you might say, what's, what's your kind of working definition uh, since you're so immersed in this field? Right. Well, these are these are really good and important questions. So um, this this is uh, actually an area that that the historian Christopher Waldrop did has some very important work in, and and so he wrote several books, sort of exploring this question, uh, the language of lynching, how this developed over time, and he traced it very carefully. And so the the, the definition has changed over time, and. Apparently, it emerged in the in the 1780s in Virginia, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and and then it sort of traveled around the, the backwoods, backwoods America, and um, eventually became sort of uh, a mainstream uh, term. But initially, the first few decades after the, after the 1780s, the term referred to non-lethal summary punishment, usually whipping, so that flogging, so summary flogging. But then there was a very important change in the semantics that occurred in the 1830s, and Chris Waldrop uh, has looked at this very carefully. And um, this, this, this occurred following the hanging of five gamblers by a mob in Vicksburg, Mississippi in 1835. And that summary hanging of the five gamblers was reported by various newspapers, and of course newspapers were just becoming very important at this, at this time, this hanging of the, of the of the of the gamblers in Vicksburg, Mississippi, was reported as a lynching, and this was picked up by various papers around the country. And if you actually, if you look, if you look at the Vicksburg newspaper, it says, "Well, this was this was not a, a lynching; it was a it was a hanging." Despite that, uh, despite that sort of that distinction, these reports that were circulated and printed in newspapers around the country sort of changed the meaning of the term. So from the the mid 1830s. Lynching came to mean a summary execution, and and of course particularly by hanging. I mean that that was sort of the association that that became most important. But it it was never exclusive. 
and and so uh, lynching was used variously to, to describe other other sorts of summary executions, and there there was a sort of a period of time in which the 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 meaning of summary execution coexisted with with the older meaning of, of sort of summary flogging, so that lasted at least for several decades. Uh, but then by the the late 19th century and then and then after the term of course to develop sort of this exclusive meaning of a summary execution. But then, uh, in terms of defining it any further, it becomes much more complicated. So uh, scholars looking at this, even in recent decades, have had different definitions. And actually, I, I guess I should, I should backtrack a little bit. I, I, I think it's not correct to say that the definition of it, that also includes non-lethal activity. That this that this disappeared in the 19th century. I, that actually has persisted in 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 in, in more recent times as well. And it actually uh, is in statutes uh, in various states that that, that have anti-lynching statutes. So sometimes you're talking about mob activity, mob punishment that is not lethal in character. In terms of scholars in recent times, they have defined it in 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 different ways. And so, for example, for Christopher Waldrop, for him, it, 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 it's very important that uh, that this this summary punishment had some sort of community backing. He argues that that this is sort of a, something we see consistently in terms of how the term has been used over the years. I'm, I think, a, a, a little bit skeptical of that. I think we see that the term has been used uh, often when clearly. These were acts of summary punishment and execution where it was just a small number of people involved, and, and yet the term was used. I mean, sometimes these are very sort of private acts of, of, uh, of punishment, uh, and maybe they, they, have, they have some support among racists, uh, white racists in the population, but perhaps there's less evidence that these have wide community backing. But the term has been used uh, to describe those kinds of private acts as well. Uh, I think quite consistently. So th- the definition that I use in my work, it actually uh, was developed by the NAACP and the Tuskegee Insti- Institute in the early 20th century. And actually, Chris Waldorf has shown how, how those anti-lynching organizations disagreed with each other. And they, they each had their own definition, and, and they, they tried to hash out a common definition. They, they, they really had a lot of difficulty with this. But um, a definition emerged that this had to be some sort of extra-legal execution done by a group. A group was defined as three or more people, and this was an extra-legal execution at the service of justice, race, or tradition was the phrase that was used by these, these uh, anti-lynching organizations. So that's, that's the definition that I use. But other scholars working in recent uh, years have, have varied from that, and, and so I would say that today uh, scholars still are not on the same page with regard to this. That's fascinating. Thank you. That that's really a, a really fascinating topic to think about. Can you talk uh, with our listeners about uh, some of the really striking variety of topics and avenues of inquiry that uh, you found most interesting as you worked on the state of the field? Obviously, you can't. Uh, go through all of them in a short podcast. People can read your piece, but um, just to give listeners, you know, a sense of this tremendous variety uh, of approaches and things that people are focusing on now. 
And so the literature has to have just developed uh, tremendously in the last 20 years. Now, it, it's still, there are still things that need to be looked at. There are very serious gaps in the scholarship, which I think we'll probably talk about later. But, but, but just, to, just to talk about sort of what, what has emerged with the, the scholarship of, of, the, of the last few decades. So we now have, uh, I think, a very rich scholarship on the South, looking at, at particular states, comparing different states. There's still some several southern states that haven't been looked at carefully, but but many of them have been looked at quite quite carefully. Uh, we have statistical studies uh, that that sort of uh, try to trace why lynching occurred and and try to make associations, for example, with the with the price of cotton. And so, cleometricians uh, uh, like Stuart Tolney and Ian Beck have found a connection with with sort of a, a a low price of cotton, a declining price of cotton. They thought that was they found that that was quite salient in terms of uh, the, the rate of lynching. Also, we've we've learned a lot more about sort of the relationship between lynching and uh, Southern culture. Amy Louise Wood did a did a very important study in 2009 looking at the visual dimensions of lynching. Lynching is spectacle, and so she looked at lynching photographs also at, at uh, uh, lynching in film and how lynching images sort of shifted in function over time, initially having sort of this, this, this uh, sort of oppressive function of, of being sort of a vicarious way for, for lynchers to, to share this participation of, of engaging in this ritual of, of, of racial oppression. But, but then lynching images were sort of then also used by anti-lynching activists and, and by uh, filmmakers with an anti-lynching message. So they, they managed to turn the, the, the image of lynching on its head and, 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 and to, to, to critique lynching through, through lynching images. So, so Amy Louise's book is, is one of a, a, a number of books that have come out that have really looked at the relationship between lynching and culture. We also have uh, studies of, of literature, uh, lynching particularly in, in African-American literature, the function that it has served uh, in, for, for black writers. Looking at, at other regions, the literature on the, the West has, has begun to develop, but again, a bit later than the, lynching, or than the literature on the South. But in the last decade or so, we, we've started to see, um, I think, I think some, some quite interesting studies of the West. So again, state studies of California, of, of Colorado, and very importantly, we're starting to see examination of the lynching of, of Hispanics. So uh, last year, Clive Webb and uh, uh, William Kerrigan published a book called Forgotten Dead, which is a just a magisterial study of of, of the lynching of, of of Mexicans, looking at hundreds of cases. Uh, most of these, uh, as you might expect, in, in the borderlands, the Southwest borderlands. Uh, Texas, uh, California, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, and really, really highlighting how that practice occurred with some frequency, had 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 uh, important significance for Western uh, cultures as they as they developed in those areas. Um, also, looking at at the the resistance of of Mexican Americans and and their their activities in organizing against um, against lynching violence. And looking uh, at, at the very important role played by Mexican diplomats in, in protesting the lynching of, of Mexican citizens, and, and that's one of the ways in which Kerrigan and Webb highlight how 
lynching of, of Mexicans differed in some ways from the lynching of African Americans. Of course, African Americans did not have that particular tool available to them that they were able to to use a, a you know, the consulate of, of, a, of another government, the diplomatic activities of another government to, to protest uh, uh, lynching. And also, uh, Kerrigan and Webb look at the sort of the, the differing chronologies between the lynching of Mexicans and the lynching of, of African-Americans. So the lynching of, of Mexicans, um, uh, this, this emerged in the antebellum era as uh, as Americans conquered areas uh, that had been part of Mexico and, of course, annexed those areas and uh, made them part of the United States. And then uh, Anglos showed up in large numbers and, and, and started to use uh, lynching violence. So the lynching violence against Mexicans began in the uh, late 1840s, 1850s. A lot of this stuff, a lot of this, this kind of violence occurred in the 1850s and, and then uh, persisted at a, at a smaller level through the late 19th century and then, and then emerged again in the era of the Mexican Revolution in the, in the 1910s. So it's a, it's a different chronology than we see with, with Southern lynching, where if we want to look at when this was most concentrated in a chronological sense, we're talking about the period of Reconstruction, so 18, 1860s into the 1870s, and then the 1890s into the first decade of the 20th century. Webb and Kerrigan look at, at both the similarities and the differences between the lynching of, of Mexicans and the lynching of African Americans. And the work that Kerrigan and Webb did was, was part of a number of studies that, that have really sort of expanded the, the chronological boundaries of, of lynching, you know, really trying to to look beyond the South, uh, trying to make regional comparisons. So this is something that I've been quite interested in, uh, trying to look at the practice uh, across the nation, um, trying to understand uh, how it developed uh, over time, how it grew out of particular regional cultures, but but also you know developed out of sort of the the, uh, the transformation of criminal justice institutions, uh, particularly attitudes regarding the law regarding the death penalty across the country. So that, that's been something that, uh, that scholars have, have, I think, done quite uh, excitingly over the last uh, uh, two decades. They've, they've really moved outside of the South. Uh, they've, they've tried to keep the South uh, in the conversation because it, it, it's absolutely, of course, central. But, but trying to think about lynching as a, as a national practice as opposed to solely a regional one. Yeah, yeah thank you, Michael. Uh, you write in the piece, possibly the most important contribution of recent scholarship on post-bellum Southern lynching is how it has begun to give us a much fuller sense of African-American response. Can you mention briefly some of these responses? Yeah, so this this is, um, I think, uh, you know, as, as you just quoted me, I, I think this is probably the most pivotal development in recent uh, scholarship. However, uh, again, this is an area that, that needs a lot more attention. And in some ways, the, you know, the flowering of scholarship in recent decades has, has, has been um, not efficient in terms of uh, completely neglecting this, this area, but I think it, it has sort of veered away from it in terms of its focus. And this is this is certainly true of my work. I mean, I'm certainly as guilty as, as anybody, perhaps more guilty in some ways, uh, because I, in my work, have, have been have been quite interested in in the lynchers themselves and, and trying to under, uh, sort of understand the culture that gave rise to this violence, trying to get into their heads. And I've, I've tried to 
to sort of keep the, the African-American experience in mind and, and to bring in African-American resistance uh, whenever I can. But I think that I probably could have done more with that. And uh, I think it's certainly something that, that scholars in the future really, really need to try to keep it at the fore of their inquiry. But, but to look at what has been done on this, there have been several very important studies. And, and I think foremost, the book that Kadata Williams published a few years ago, they left great marks on me, which looks at, at, at the experience of African-American communities as members of their communities were lynched, were targeted with white violence. And uh, she looks at, 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 the, at the various ways um, in which African-Americans uh, resisted the violence, testified about the violence, how they, they, they processed the trauma of the violence. And she gives us a much fuller sense of, 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 the, of the range of African-American responses. And uh, she, she, I think, just does just pivotal work in, in reclaiming African-American voices in terms, of, in terms of these experiences of racially oppressive violence. Her study is quite important. Uh, also a study by, by uh, Crystal Feimster looking at African-American women, their experience of, of, of lynching, uh, also looking at sort of the, the tangle of, of, of white uh, patriarchy and, and its implications for African-American women in terms of rape. And uh, so she she has a has very interesting chapters in her recent book that uh, that look at several activists who were uh, important voices uh, in, in terms of responding to lynching. In one case, even even advocating lynching, she looks at uh, Rebecca uh, Latimer Felton, the, the white Southern feminist of the of the late 19th century, who actually very famously advocated lynching black male rapists and and incited lynchings. Uh, and Feimster also looks at, at Ida B. Wells, uh, you know, a very, a very prominent, very, very important African-American uh, activist, anti-lynching activist. So she makes a, uh, Feimster makes a very interesting comparison of these, of these two women and their, their discourses surrounding lynching and, and really helps us to understand better both the African-American experience, but also the, the, the role of sort of, uh, intertwined notions of, of patriarchy and race and, and how this shaped uh, uh, violence as, as experienced by, by African-American women. Mm. Thank you. That, I think, will give listeners a wonderful sense of uh, the, the kind of range of, um, of new scholarship on this important question uh, in, in your piece. So as we conclude, Michael, uh, I think it's important, as you mentioned, to talk about uh, the last section of your state of the field where you uh, focus on some of the weaknesses of the literature, the gaps in the field, and the future directions in the field. So maybe this will be a good way for us to conclude the podcast, and uh, hopefully people will then turn to your essay for a fuller explanation of this. But uh, talk with us a little about weaknesses of literature, gaps in the field, and uh, where you think promising future directions are. Sure. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's, uh, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, I think it's really important to, to keep the, the experience of the, of the victims uh, and, their, and their families, their communities in mind. And this is something that Kidata Williams actually talks about in, in her response, which is part of the forum. 
uh, in, in this issue. And so she also, uh, in that piece, she, she offers a very, I think, very, very, um, very good sense of direction and strategy for how to do this. For, for how to how to keep the experiences of the uh, of the of the communities that that experience or that that, that uh, were targeted by this violence how to, how to keep those experiences in mind you know I think that that's something that uh, that that really needs to be to be addressed in, in future scholarship also as I mentioned in the essay there there are there are particular weaknesses um, in in the regional scholarships and so there are particular uh, states in the West uh, and I mentioned Texas and Montana. That, that really haven't been very well studied. I think this, these would be wonderful projects for for graduate students, for, for uh, uh, somebody choosing a dissertation topic. They're both quite complex, but uh, this, this is an area that these are both states uh, that haven't really been looked at very carefully. Uh, there also are southern states that haven't been looked at very carefully. And so, for example, Alabama uh, has, has, has not been looked at very carefully. Florida, uh, uh, Tennessee, Arkansas would be would be another one. And so, I, I think there's, there's definitely room for uh, state studies, studies that look at these states and look at the, the, the sort of the, the, the interstate patterns, different regions within the, the states in terms of the, the violence and, and sort of also the, the, the effects on on, on those uh, targeted by the violence. In terms of other areas that, that need work, as I mentioned in the essay, there, there is a very, very serious need uh, for a centralized database uh, that, that collects lynching data. And we, we have uh, sort of partial efforts that have been made in this direction. And I've, I've published several databases in my books and uh, also uh, Tone and Beck, the nutritions have, have, have compiled databases, which they've continued to refine. Um, but we, we, we don't have a, a centralized database that, that scholars can go to, that, that's readily accessible, that, that is national in scope, that is uh, broad in, in, in scope in a chronological sense. And uh, I, I think this is this is very important uh, because otherwise, uh, you know, there's, for example, there's information available on the internet, which are lynching lists that were devised by anti-lynching activists, also by the Chicago Tribune, in the uh, late 19th, early 20th centuries, and that that is good data, it's it, 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 it's useful data, but that data is also it's it's messy, some of it is inaccurate, and so on. So uh, I think I think it, it really would be extremely useful to have some kind of centralized uh, uh, database that, that would be accessible. So I, I would hope that's something that, that would be pursued in in, uh, in the near future. As I mentioned, it also in the essay, an effort has begun to to think in transnational terms about American lynching, uh, to move beyond the notion that American lynching was was part of an American exceptionalism. And so we're starting to see work that, that that tries to put American lynching in 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 a in a global perspective, and I think this is a very exciting area that 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 that, that needs a lot more uh, uh, attention. And uh, uh, I, I think this 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 can be can be very rich. So as I mentioned in the essay, something that looks like lynching is even called lynching because the this word, which apparently originated in the U.S., has expanded around the world. And uh, it's actually made its way into different languages, and so the the word is is now global in scope. But there also are 
practices of collective violence that we see around the world that look like American lynching, but of course differ in important respects as well because they are occurring in different in different social and cultural contexts. So uh, I, I think this this is a this is a very fruitful um, area for, for for scholars to to, to look at, and they, they've they've begun to do so. I've, I'm working on a, a collection that will be published with the University of Illinois Press, a two volume collection. Uh, looking at lynching uh, in, in, in Asia and Africa and the Middle East, also uh, around the Americas and in Europe, and, and, and really trying to think about lynching in, in global terms and transnational terms. And that, that's just uh, one of a series of publications that have come out in recent years. But uh, uh, there, uh, there's a lot of room, I think, to, to, to take a, a global approach, a transnational approach, uh, you know, trying to trying to move beyond uh, simply thinking about uh, American violence as exceptional in the world. Indeed. Uh, thank you so much. We have been talking today with Michael Pfeiffer, who is Associate Professor in the Department of History at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice at the City University of New York. He is the author of Rough Justice, Lynching in American Society, 1874 to 1947, the Roots of Rough Justice, Origins of American Lynching, and the editor of Lynching Beyond Dixie, American Mob Violence Outside the South. And as Michael just mentioned, he is now at work as a sole editor of a two-volume collection on global lynching. His State of the Field essay, At the Hands of Parties Unknown, The State of the Field of Lynching Scholarship, appears in the December 2014 issue of the Journal of American History. Michael, many thanks again for your wonderful essay and also for this uh, uh, superb podcast. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you, Ed. Good to talk with you today. This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the Journal of Record in American History. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. To join, call us at 812-855-7311 or visit us online at www.oah.org. In addition to receiving the journal four times a year, OAH members have access to a growing number of member benefits, ranging from discounts on a wide variety of insurance products to discounted subscriptions to the ACLS Humanities eBook Library to reduce registration fees for the annual meeting held every spring. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Please join us in March for our next episode. If you have any comments or questions, please send an email to jahcast at oah.org.